Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Oh, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from the Save Ferris Charity Fundraiser, my name is Don, and to my right we have the comic book guy, John. Pucker up, buttercup. And to my left we have the professor, Ken. And call me sir, goddammit. How are you guys doing tonight? Oh, feeling good. Yeah? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent, sir. It's a good night. Yeah, why is that? Because I got, I was allowed to take out the special car tonight. Ah, the special car. Uh, it does have remnants of the car that was in this movie. Yeah. Convertible. You guys pull up and it's like watching uh, two little kids that finally got to play with the toy that, you know, well, it's you're nice. not supposed to play with. It's nice. It's a Mercedes SLK that was my mother's car. Uh, she's had it for 12 years, and she only drove it maybe, you know, 10 miles, a, you know, a week. So it's only got like 10,000 miles on it. Yeah. Well, hey, I had to laugh when you guys pulled up because it was kind of cute. Tonight we are talking about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ferris Bueller comes to us from the Bronco Helmet. It actually comes out of the director series that we started way back when, and it fell under a John Hughes movie. Uh, Professor, you were the one that picked it out. Um, what are your earliest memories of Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I am so enamored by the movie. It is in the sweet spot. I have graduated from high school, and I am seeing a, sun, a fun summer movie that made me laugh and just feel so jovial and light and happy after the movie is over with that it really stuck to me and has always been something that is completely endearing to me. Excellent. So when this came up, you were pretty happy about that? I was content, yes. Excellent. Excellent. What about you? What's your earliest memory of this movie? Uh, Well, for this movie, I remember my brother and I growing up that we pestered my dad when this movie was coming out that we wanted to go see it. So he actually took us to the theater to see this movie. Uh, And I remember when they get to the scene where Ferris Bueller has his room all worked up, have the body move and everything in the bed and the snoring and everything. My brother and I both looked over at my dad and asked if we could stop by the hardware store on the way home. And just his face of, no. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes, and then he had to remind us several times afterwards that we are not Ferris Bueller. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure a lot of parents had to remind a lot of kids during that time that they were, in fact, not Ferris Bueller. I saw this movie in the theater. I was in the sixth grade, and it definitely made an impression on me. You know, how many kids didn't want to take a day off or haven't taken a day off? I remember being in high school, and 
my buddies and I would take days off all the time and we would just sit and play Madden, you know, but we all took the day off because Ferris Bueller said it was okay. Did you have nine absences? I'm not quite too sure how many absences I had, but I was probably borderline nine or so. Did you ever skip any school, Professor? Is the Pope Catholic? Is the bear shit in the woods? Uh, That's a yes, John, in case you were wondering. What about you? Surprisingly, yes, I have skipped a day or two. And I remember one time my parents actually figured it out that I had skipped. And so they were all concerned of, you know, at the school, they always watched for parents' signatures and tried to compare parents' signatures. My mother was like, you know, how can you forge my signature on somewhere? How can you get away with it and forge my signature when they have my signature on file? And I was like, well, I always use dad's signature. Well, there you go. Worked like a charm. Mm-hmm. Got away with it every time. Released on June 11th, 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was directed by John Hughes, written by John Hughes, and it stars Matthew Broderick, Mia Sarah, Alan Rook, Jennifer Grey, Jeffrey Jones, Cindy Pickett, Edie McClure, Lyman Ward, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made on a budget of $5 million, and it brought in $71 million. Not too bad for 86, right? Not too bad. It did pretty good in the domestic box office. I'd say, I remember this movie blowing up when it first came out, and I thought it would have done a lot better than that. Well, I mean, back then, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's you have to take a look at the landscape that this movie came out in. It did spend seven weeks in the top ten, but two weeks before this, or no, it was four weeks before this came out, Top Gun came out, which was the number one box office. It was the 800-pound gorilla. Two weeks before it came out, Karate Kid 2 came out, and that was also in the top five. And then one week later, it had Back to School come out, and that was in the top five grossing as well. Two weeks after this came out, it had Cobra, which was number 14. So it had serious competition through the summer. It was contending with top five movies grossing that year. So it did, you know, it held its own. Oh, for sure. That was a pretty good summer. It was a really good summer. What did you guys think of the cast of this movie? Iconic. You know what I mean? Uh, Matthew Roderick as Ferris has been seared into our brains. And the supporting cast around him, I thought, was excellent. Alan Rook does a fantastic job as Cameron. And everyone else just kind of falls into place. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you with majority of the cast. I thought was perfect for this movie. They were perfectly cast, except for... Mia Sarah. I didn't think she really added to anything. I thought she was good. She did a good job playing the role, but I almost feel like she could have been replaced with anybody and still had the same impact in this movie. She really didn't do much in this movie. Uh, I thought Mia Sarah did fine. She was she was fine. I thought Mia Sarah, she was wonderful. She, I, she had an elegant, a sophistication to her, and I thought that she was able to really show her prowessness to be able to stand up to Ferris Bueller. She was the, I feel like she's the only one that stands up and goes toe to toe with Ferris. And she, so she shows her dominance as her character. For example, when she's outside of the school, standing in front with, with Rooney waiting for Ferris to show up. I thought that she looked really, really strong there and she dominated Rooney. Also, when we see her again, when we are watching her tenderly working with 
Cameron when he's in that kind of catatonic state and her and her uh I I just I thought sure, there was a tenderness to her that really made me believe in her and I think that she was great as Sloan. When did the Breakfast Club come out? Was that 85? Yes. Okay. Just checking. There uh, are a lot of connections to Breakfast Club in this movie. Uh, a lot of people, these fan theories is that, you know, Vernon is the, or uh, Rooney is the vice principal, or is he, yeah, he's the vice principal to Vernon's principal. But he, but he's the dean of students at this high school. Oh, is he? Yeah. Yeah. And it's Sherman, was it called Sherman? Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks High School. They're both it, there. Vernon was the vice principal. Oh, was he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so Rooney, Rooney's the principal. That's right. He's the dean of students. Yes. Yeah, think of him as like being the emperor over all of his little minions. His little name tag says Ed Rooney, dean of students. Oh, I assumed he was the principal. Some of the other connections, I don't know if you guys noticed, in Ferris's bedroom, he had uh, movie quotes and stuff on his walls from Breakfast Club. Yeah, uh, he had a poster of Simple Minds who does the Don't You Forget About Me track. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It's John Hughes, John Hughes, right? And he's always hinted at uh, a connected universe. Yeah, I think so, it's the three movies that are supposed to be connected specifically is Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, and Weird Science. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Well, so. and they all come out right next to each other. 85 was Breakfast Club. Uh, that was February. And then Weird Science was probably Summer. And then the following year, then we have Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So they're really tight, written, yeah. written and directed by. Yeah. So uh, we have eight movies that were written and directed by John Hughes. This guy, he is just a fierce, fierce person for the 80s. Listen to this. In 84, 16 Candles, 85, Breakfast Club, 85, Weird Science, 86, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 87, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, 88, She's Having a Baby, 89, Uncle Buck, and in 91... Last time he wrote and directed was Curly Sue. But he has 30 writing credits and 23 producing credits. This guy is a freaking giant in the 80s and the 90s. Yes. And his uh, writing and directing, uh, Mount Everest, if you will, Home Alone. Sure, I believe that. You said his writing, right? Written and produced, he did Home Alone. Right, because Christopher Columbus directed that. Correct. I had to to put that together. Yeah, And, and so, you know, he is... And Wait, he, you're saying you think that Home Alone is his I, Mount Everest? I think so because it it grossed a ton of money. It was it was when you look at what he grossed off of his other stuff, you are talking about modest amounts. Sixteen candles, twenty three million. Now that was his writing and directing debut as well. Well, okay, okay, I'll give you that if 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 we're going by if we're going by the numbers and if you're going by profits, then yes, Home Alone obviously is the, is Mount Everest because it makes the most. What I thought when you said that, Mount Everest, how would I put it? I put it in the terms of how well the movie was. And, and I hear what you're saying. You know, like the written, like strongly written, yeah. right? I think, I think The Breakfast Club is probably or, his strongest written movie. Or maybe to say the essence of John Hughes. There you go. Yeah. yeah. To talk about the essence of John Hughes, a Mount Everest for me, probably Ferris. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Think back to all the John Hughes movies that you've seen, uh, and you take the essence of it. Which one is your Mount Everest? Breakfast Club. See, I think I'm with you on that one too. Yeah. So. 
the thing that I love about Breakfast Club and actually kind of seeped over into Ferris Bueller is that both movies focus more on the characters than the story. It's more about character development and character interactions. Um, so that's what I really kind of appreciate. Because Ferris Bueller, yeah, has a story going on in the background and saving Cameron and fixing Cameron and having a great day off. But really, you get the dialogue in the John Hughes movies. You get the characters, the, the real standouts, especially, you know, Cameron's whole story arc with just his character development is what I really loved. Yeah, well, there you go. I wouldn't say Ferris has a lot of character development, but I understand what you're saying. Ferris mm-hmm. is a little bit more like an idea than a character, I feel like, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, Jennifer Grey? What would you guys think of Ferris's sister? I loved her in this movie. I thought she was great in this movie. This is right before I think she did Dirty Dancing. Yeah, Dirty Dancing's 87. Uh, and I guess she got recommended for this role by Charlie Sheen because of Red Dawn. Oh, well, there you go. Another movie. Reviewed here at Three Guys in a Flick. I thought Jennifer Grey was a lot of fun. She plays uh, the bitchy sister to a T. I agree. I agree. Can we talk about Alan Ruck for a sec? Sure. Uh, first of all, I think you said it earlier, Don. Uh, he was really a standout character in this movie. The movie kind of focused on, you know, even though it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, really the movie's kind of about Ferris trying to fix Cameron and fix his emotional issues. Alan Ruck, I did not realize this, was only paid $40,000 to make this movie. Yeah, I mean, times are hard, man. What are you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I guess it looked from what I looked up, this was, I think, his second or his third movie he had ever made. I'm sure it's the first big movie he's ever made. Uh, and I guess afterwards, work became hard to find for him. He actually had to take a minimum wage job uh, working in a Sears warehouse uh, and I guess the funny kind of, not really, I don't know if it's a funny story, but he was slightly embarrassed that he went from Ferris Bueller to working in a warehouse. And he said that people were coming up to him all the time asking or saying to him, you know, you look like just like that guy from Ferris Bueller. And he would deny it. He says, I, I wasn't in that movie. It's the wrong guy. Yeah, well, that's, that's probably got to be hard. Mm-hmm. So. Alan Rick was 29 when he was filming this. Yeah. I know. I know, but crazy. He's, he's got a baby face. He yeah, he, he did does. say that, uh, you know, he was a little embarrassed, a little shy about being 29 and filming this. But back when he was 20, he looked like he was 12. Oh, I can imagine. So, the uh, the chemistry that Alan Rook and Matthew Broderick uh, really paid off in this. They had spent a lot of time together on stage, working together, and so the rapport that they had grown with on stage was definitely beneficial during the filming of this movie that uh, John Hughes was very, very satisfied how well they played against each other because of all of their time that they had spent previously on stage together. Yeah. They were in Biloxi Blues together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know that the two actors that played Ferris's parents met on, on the uh, on set on set Fell in love and got married. And then got divorced in 1993. Yeah, got divorced. Yeah. I think I heard somewhere that John Hughes wrote this in like nine days. It was something stupid like that. And I know that he has a propensity for writing. He he gets on these crazy wild writing streaks where he, he just bangs out these scripts in a stupidly short amount of time. Yeah, he was crazy talented and crazy creative. 
You know, there's one character in this movie that we have not talked about, one cast member. And who's that? The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider. What'd you think of the car? It was nice. It was a Ferrari. It was fake, but it was a Ferrari. Well, they actually did. There was only about 100 of them left in, I guess, the world at that time. And they did find a collector who would bring it in for some of the still shots. But otherwise, they had to fabricate the car for all the rest of the scenes. It wasn't a spider. It was. It was an MG. Mount. What? The 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 car underneath the chassis was an MG. Yeah, looking at the taillights on the Ferrari, it's like, man, those taillights, those are exactly like an MG. <laughs> when you first saw this movie, and you know when Cameron goes and kicks the car and does all that, did you cringe a little? I still cringe. Yeah, I think so too. Even today, I'm like, oh, it's such a pretty car. Yeah. Do you both know what time it is? No, John. What time is it? It would be time for trivia. In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. When Cameron was sick in bed, what was he singing about? Uh, Kid Cameron in Idrip's Land. I will give that one to you. Let my Cameron go. Do you know what the original song was? Nope. When Moses was in Egypt's land. Oh, yeah. I knew it was something like that. I knew it had to do with the Exodus. There you go. Ferris's sister's name is Jeannie, but according to her, what do her friends call her? Shauna. That goes to the professor. Oh, fuck. I don't even remember. I don't even think I remember that. What are the call letters of the radio station that is playing at the very beginning of the movie? Uh, K-R-C-P-T-Q-Y. I don't know. W-L-S. W-L-S? Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Complete the phrase that Ferris says when he calls Cameron. Be a man, take some blank, and get dressed and pick me up. There you go. What type of snacks are Ferris and Sloan eating in the hot tub? Funyuns? No, Oreos. Oreo cookies. What movie is used... In Ferris's description of his illness. Alien. There you go. Very good. Where was Ferris reported to have passed out last night? 31 Flavors. 31 Flavors. Very excellent. Who did the girl at school tell Jeannie that Ferris was going to donate his eyes to? Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. Correct. What does Jeannie tell Mr. Rooney she has when he's inside the house? Uh, Her father's gun. uh, A a raging uh, case of herpes. I'll give it to you, both of you. It was the gun and a scorching case of herpes. What subject was Ferris' test on the day he had off? Economics. Socialism. European socialism. So it goes to Don. What hockey team's logo is on Cameron's jersey? Flyers. The Maple Leafs? The Detroit Red Wings. That's what it was. How long would a lump of coal take to turn to a diamond inside Cameron's butt? Two Two weeks. weeks. Excellent. The last question. This is for all the money. What is the Ferrari's license plate? Nervous. Nervous. I'll give that to you both. So according to my records, it looks like uh, the professor won that one. So he is now in the lead. Congratulations, professor. Wait, I broke the tie? You broke the tie. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. How the fuck is he in the lead? Well, he won that round. But are you saying... Overall, he's yeah. in the lead? Yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake. I want won. a fucking recount, man. 
In a Chicago suburb one month before graduation, high school senior Ferris Bueller fakes illness to stay home from school. His parents believe he's ill, though his sister Jeannie does not. After learning Ferris stayed home for the day, the dean of students, Ed Rooney, is determined to expose Ferris's chronic truancy. Ferris persuades his hypochondriac best friend Cameron Fry to help excuse Ferris's girlfriend Sloan Peterson from school on the grounds that her grandmother died. To complete the ruse that Sloan's father is picking her up from school, Ferris borrows Cameron's father's 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider. Cameron, who is afraid of his father's wrath, is dismayed when Ferris decides to take the car on a day trip into Chicago. Ferris promises they will return the car as it was, including preserving the original odometer mileage. All right, fire away. What did you guys think of this fucking opening? It was good. You know, we opened to uh, the the radio, and then uh, it finally, uh, we hear mother asking, Ferris, Ferris, and then... uh, she and then we get that look of Ferris looks like he's dead in bed, you know, not blinking. His mouth is wide open. Yeah, I thought it was a good opening. It uh, felt very John Hughes. Yeah, we are introduced to mom and dad. We are introduced to Ferris and we are introduced to Jeannie. I love Jeannie in the background with her looks and her just, oh my God. And then every time it would cut back to Ferris, he would be making faces at her. The big wink. Oh and- yeah, a total sibling rivalry. Right there, for sure. What did you think of Ferris breaking the fourth wall? Back then, I thought it was great. I'm one of those guys that I don't mind if you break the fourth wall if you do it right. You know what I mean? A lot of movies try and do it, and it comes across cheesy or uncalled for. There are other movies that use it very effectively, i.e. Ferris, which I think is one of the first ones to do it, all the way up to Deadpool, where we're at now. You know what I mean? I enjoyed it. I I like when uh, they break the fourth wall. I was wondering, is this the first fourth wall break that we have had for our podcast? No, I don't think so. Give me a minute and I'll think about it. Because I couldn't think of another one. I didn't take the time to read through the list. Yeah, and I'm trying to cycle through it in my brain at the moment and do the show, so we'll see. Yeah, I don't remember a previous podcast, but uh, what I do appreciate, uh, as you kind of said, I think this was one of the first movies that I remember them breaking the fourth wall in the movie. Yeah. And when it does, man, what a crowd-pleasing moment for that. You know, he looks right into the camera, blinks once, and he says they bought it. And then you got the MTV, dun, dun, dun. So satisfying. I got to say that every time I watch that bit, when that music comes on for the MTV, it always takes me back. It always takes me back to my parents' living room watching some MTV. And then it, it briskly moves right into uh, Zig Zig Sputnik's uh, Love Missile F-111 where we have all of the crazy uh, introduction to why Ferris deserves a day off. Right. And then we cut to school and we get that famous roll call scene with Ben Stein as the teacher mm-hmm. uh, who were, you know, I don't know anyone who hasn't ever not quoted it. Bueller. Bueller. Fry. Bueller. Fry. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we also get to see Christy Swanson. Uh, oh, so er- briefly. Early Buffy. Which is my old boss's cousin. And then right after the roll call of Fry, Fry, then we get the phone ring. Cameron, babe, how you feeling? Shredded. <laughs> and so now we get to introduce Cameron. Well, let me ask you guys this question. Do you have or have you ever had 
like a friendship relationship like Ferris and Cameron. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at both my Camerons right now. Growing up, uh, my friend Aaron, I honestly feel like we were in a Ferris-Cameron relationship. He was Cameron, I was Ferris. In that, not so much that I was so technical savvy and popular. Ferris? But it was that I always talked him into doing things he did not want to do. Uh, and I knew it was always good for him to do these things. Like he would work all day while I was off at college or whatever. And I would show up at his, you know, outside his window at like 10 at night saying, okay, we're going to the bar. He'd be like, no, I, I don't want to go to the bar. I got to work in the morning. I'm tired. I worked all day. I'm like, no, no, we're going to the bar. He's like, no, I'm not going. I'm just going to keep tapping on your window. We're going to the bar. Fine, I'll go to the bar. When we have Cameron sitting there in bed and he doesn't want to get up, I got to say, I was so envious when I saw him sitting there in his room. Look at that gorgeous bed, and he has a speakerphone right next to his bed, and he has the, uh, the, 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 electric, the electricity orb next to him. It's just like, so awesome looking. He has everything. Both these guys' rooms are pretty fucking tricked out. Did you see all the pill bottles behind Ken? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know that there's something up there mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and then uh, after the bit with Ferris and Cameron, we cut to Rooney and uh, he finds out that Ferris is missing another day of school. And I believe this is where he calls his mom. Yeah. Do you know where they came up with nine, nine times? No. Uh, John Hughes just thought it sounded good when uh, Rooney said nine. Nine times. I don't so remember him that sick, being sick nine times. Didn't we do that not too long ago? It's probably because he wasn't sick. He was skipping school. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He's just leading you down the primrose path. <laughs> You've seen this movie once or twice there, it's all then, news Professor. To me. It usually is. During this time, though, Ferris is still narrating for us and, and letting us know what's going on. And this is the bit where his grade starts to change. Well, he, well, ch- he changes his absence. He changes that, the absence. That's what I meant. You know what I meant. Now, do you think that was a callback to War Games? Of course it was. A thousand percent it was. Yeah, because he got the computer and Jeannie got the car. Right. Yeah. However, he also did get an $8,000 keyboard. So, And a $4,000 computer. Yeah. So Mr. and Mrs. Bueller must be doing okay. Do you know what he also got, but they cut it out of the movie? Uh, little brother and sister? Well, but, there was that. But he actually was given uh, by his parents a bunch of bonds when he was young. Uh, and he, there's a scene that they cut out where he calls his dad and asks, uh, when do those bonds mature? And dad's like, well, they're, they're ready to go at any time. That's what he cashes in and uses for the day. That's why he has all that big wad of cash in his pocket. Oh. And then immediately after this, we see Ferris playing the clarinet. Hilarious backstory about the clarinet is that Ferris is playing that lousy, lousy clarinet. It was a backdrop to uh, the bedroom. And can't and and John Hughes he sees the clarinet and he goes, "Hey Matthew, do you know how to play the clarinet?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, I do." So he picks it up, he starts playing it. They start filming it, and it sounds exactly like that. Clearly, he didn't know how to play the clarinet at all. That's and he, awesome. And he improv the line. Never had a lesson. I do also appreciate that while this is all going on, you can kind of notice, and I don't know if you really pay attention the first time you see it, but Ferris is setting up all those little things, the pulleys and everything. For the scenes that happen later, yeah, yeah, he's he's uh, he has the trophy in his hand, you know, which is the counterweight. You know, he's he's attaching it to the string. And then uh, there's another little moment that we are also introduced to, which uh, which I really enjoyed, which is 
the complete and utter boredom that we see in that classroom. And it just cracked me up how everybody just looks so hopelessly bored with it. Uh, uh, Udu economics. Anybody know Udu? Udu? Voodoo economics. Something D-O-O economics. Anybody? 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 Yeah. And, And then with that total boredom, what do we go to? Ferris dancing to I Dream of Jeannie in his room, having a wonderful time, probably on his fifth outfit by now. So what time in the morning do you think this is at this moment? Nine o'clock. Think so? I'd say it's about nine. Okay. Just curious. Nine times? Nine times. And then uh, we cut back to the school, and this is kind of where the rumors affairs start to float a little bit. Right. And, and we have Jeannie walking down the hallway being completely pissed off about all of the talk that is happening around Ferris being sick. And then we get that little phone booth moment where Ferris is on his synthesizer with the obnoxious uh, sick sounds that he plays over the phone to anybody who's listening. So what did, what did Ferris do? Did he just call the payphone and hope that someone answered? That's what I think. I, that's what I'm guessing. Oh, okay. Now I actually, after seeing this movie, I loved Ferris so much. I made my parents buy me a keyboard that you could record sounds on. Wow, that's not surprising at all. Never learned to play it. Yeah, well. We also have our first back and forth between Ed and Grace, and they're starting to talk about Ferris and what could be possibly going on here. And then he has that little moment about how he's going to give Ferris a first-class ticket to nowhere. And then you have Grace saying, oh, Ed. (laughs) You sounded just like Like Dirty dirty Harry. Harry. And then uh, the facial expressions that Rooney keeps giving her, that's good. And so, you know, Rooney, he's such a buffoon. But, you know, for Grace, you know, she she woos him because each time he comes up with his little crackpot ideas, you know, she just, she, she fawns over him. And it's hilarious how much she seems to love this guy. Our first introduction to Ed, when Rooney, when he's on the phone and you have that little speckle of dirt right next to his placard on his desk and he, and he flicks it off and we see his desk is immaculate and everything is just so clean and tidy. And it is such a wonderful juxtaposition when we think about what he's going to be doing later on in the movie where it has nothing to do with clean and tidy. Yeah. Speaking of Grace, I think she was another standout of this movie. Uh, the scene where she has the pencils in her hair. Do you know where that scene came from? John Hughes? The When she first showed up on set with that big hairdo and everything, there was a joke going around uh, John Hughes and the rest of other people of, how many pencils do you think we could stick in that hair? It was the first thing that Hughes said to her when, she, when he saw her hair. That's awesome. And so... They started going, and she was able to fit five pencils in there. And so that was that was just something that Hughes thought was hilarious to think, oh, look at that. I found another pencil. And the way Edie McClure sells it with her face, it she's when she pulls out a pencil, you can see on her face, it's like, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Exactly. Well, then yeah, she's so good stuff. keeps pulling them out. It's kind of funny. Yeah. She's got great, great comedic skills that really shine in this. Is, and then we get to see her again, as you said, in Planes, Trains. Yeah. And then we cut back to Cameron in the car. Well, first, Ferris says, I bet he's sitting in the car just debating on whether to come to pick me up. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'm not going. And then he gets out, throws a tantrum, comes back in. And, and this scene is shows us that you know ferris and cameron are that tight and the fact that ferris can pretty much call 
what Cameron's doing um, means that they're pretty close. Absolutely. And, you know, just having it revealed how this is probably what happens between Ferris and Cameron all the time. Cameron is reluctantly being pulled into doing something with Ferris that he doesn't want to do. And eventually he caves, but he caves at great cost to himself because he always crumbles. Yeah. We also set up the whole storyline here of is Ferris taking the day off, you know, partly because he wants to, but mostly because he wants Cameron to get out of a shell and have a fun day before they all go off to college and everything. Or is it really that just he needs Cameron to help get Sloan out of school? So what, What's your question? Well, I'm wondering, is this where the movie kind of takes a diversion of basically becoming more of a movie about Cameron? Is about Because Ferris Bueller's whole point is he wants to give Cameron a fun day. But I also felt like when I first saw this movie, was he just using Cameron to get Sloan out of school? Was that kind of, did you see the kind of two storylines going on there? No, I saw uh, Ferris just thinking about Ferris. Okay. I saw them as the three musketeers. If one of them is not present, then Ferris is not going to be content. Ferris has to have Cameron and Sloan with him. Uh, I think he has to have Cameron out of necessity. Uh, Clearly, the boyfriend wants the girlfriend there. But I think the whole point of this day when Ferris woke up, though it may have changed throughout the day, but the whole point when Ferris woke up was he wanted to take a day off from school because he felt like he deserved one. And Ferris is selfish like that. Yeah. And so, Ferris is always thinking about Ferris first. Right. So there's the answer to your question. Well, that's a, that's a strange that you bring up that Ferris is always thinking about Ferris because he does make a point throughout the movie that a lot of it he's doing to help Cameron. Yeah, to make himself feel better. You think that's what it is? Of yeah. course it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I will turn around and now say this. He's 18 years old. I mean, what 18-year-old wasn't all about themselves? So Absolutely. So I, I think that if you try to overanalyze it or if you try to, you know, was Ferris a dick or this, that, and the other, I think you're, you're missing the point of the film. The point of the film was, uh, you know, there's this kid who doesn't have to quite start making adult decisions yet, but it's coming. So he takes this opportunity and wants to take a day off from school and by any means necessary. So like I said, what 18 year old wasn't selfish. After this scene, we go to, uh, obviously Cameron shows up, they call Rooney, and Cameron is faking being Salone's father on the phone. You know what my favorite part about this scene is? The call waiting. Remember the back in the day when you had the receiver and you yeah. had to click the button? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> this, this, couldn't, this could not work today. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And it's set up so nicely, right? Because uh, you can, I guess... When I first saw this, uh, when you first hear Cameron's voice as Sloane's dad, you know it's a fake voice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Very cartoony. Yeah. And Rooney thinks he's on to him. And he's, oh, this little, sh- this is Ferris Bueller. This little fucker's think he's getting away with one. And so he starts talking shit. But naturally, since Ferris has this all planned out, and apparently multiple phone lines in his house, which, you know. I noticed that immediately as well. He must, must have nice. two phone lines. Yeah, it must be nice. Um he calls into the school too. And just the fact that, you know, uh, the way Hughes shoots it and the way they set it up, it, it's, it's a total gag and it pays off and it was really well done. So Cameron's on the phone with Rooney. Bueller calls in. 
They're setting up the, the ploy. I love Grace's reaction when she sees oh, or she oh, hears oh, uh, oh, Ferris <laughs> on the phone. And then, yeah, they swap phones. She ad-libbed that whole. Oh, yeah, that was so good. So they were told, they were told, you got to do something comedic here. And Hughes, he didn't have anything in mind. However, Edie, she comes from a history of comedy sketches. And she said, this is what we're going to do. When I come into the room, you leave the room. When you come back in the room, I'm going to leave the room. And all we got to do is just run around. Yeah. And so that was that was her design for, for that whole scene. Yeah, and it pays off. I mean, it works really well. Very, uh, There's good comedic timing there. Who, you know I mean? who screwed up? Uh, Ferris says that Cameron screwed up when he said, uh, you know, have her there alone. And then Ferris, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Uh-huh. And then he you know, says, okay, well, I want you out there with her. And Ferris claimed that Cameron screwed up. Did he screw up or was that Ferris's fault? Cameron got overconfident. I think it's all Ferris's fault. Yeah, I was going to say, because it, it did sound a little weird that I want her out there alone, but I think they could have gone with that. Yeah. And you know what else I noticed about this? When Ferris calls in to get his assignments from Mr. Rooney, he doesn't he, sound sick at all. At mm-hmm. all. He's way too confident. Yeah. he's and, having, and He just sounds like he's on top of the world. Well, he is. He's got his suit on. He's combing his hair. And how Rooney doesn't pick up on that. Who knows? Maybe it's because he's shitting his pants because he thinks that Sloane's dad is actually on the and, other line. And that he just told him to bring the corpse or oh, yeah. wheel bring the, the corpse, corpse out. Yeah. I love the, the next scene where we see the nurse walking down the hall to get Sloane. Hearing her pants rubbing. Yeah. But, but the fact of you see Sloane in the classroom completely bored, just kind of dazing off, sees the nurse walk in, and before the nurse even says anything, she starts packing up all her stuff. And so Sloan gets to leave. What do you think of the argument over taking the car? Uh, yeah, um, you know Ferris is going to win. Um, I thought it was fine. I mean, it was it was a typical I had high to, school uh, conversation. I had to appreciate the, well, we can't take your car. It's a piece of shit. It's not a piece of shit. Hey, I have to be envious of your piece of shit. I don't have one. Yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, I uh, I figure that, you know, Ferris has probably looked at this car, you know, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, going over to Cameron's place. And he has finally hatched the perfect plan where he can make a dream come true, that he is going to sit in that car and potentially drive it. You can almost see him have a cargasm as he sat in that seat. Oh, yeah. So they get the car and they go pick up Sloan. <laughs> I love he. Did you feel kind of he was dressed like Inspector Gadget? Like it was a foreshadowing that he was going to be the future Inspector Gadget? Yes, that's exactly what I thought of when they showed him. Even back then, I thought, oh, look, it's Inspector Gadget. So it's funny that he went on and actually became Inspector Gadget. So. <laughs> and the reveal, the bus drives by, and then. And so, uh, you know, Rooney's out there with Sloan. And he's quoting this poetry and everything else. And you could just see the contempt in her eyes. Yeah. And then. But she totally plays him. You're such a beautiful man. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, she's about to get out of school. Do you have a kiss for daddy? Awkward or not awkward? Uh, Not awkward for us, the audience. Did you know how that kiss was filmed? With a camera? The apparently the original kiss, this, there was this scene and another scene that they did this, that it was actually just a quick peck. But Hughes wanted it to be longer because he wanted that line, well, that's how it is in that family. So that's so how it is in their family. When they edited it, they just slowed that scene down so the kiss would be longer and kind of obnoxious. 
Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, back when uh, making an incest joke was funny. I mean, just a year earlier, you had Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Isn't it always funny? <laughs> I mean, we had Luke and Leia. So they pick up Sloan and they take off and, you know, and then Cameron pops up from the back, which I always thought was cute. And he's like, all right, Ferris, we picked up Sloan. Let's take the car back. And of course, Ferris being Ferris says, no, we're going to go to the city. That was one of the scenes that bothered me in this movie is that you think Ferris being a real friend. I mean, it doesn't work out, you know, it doesn't work out in the story of the movie or whatever in the, in the idea of, of course, Ferris is going to keep the car. But you think a real friend would say, yeah, let's take the car back and we'll just take your piece of shit and use that for the day. Ferris isn't doing this maliciously. He, he like you said, he kind of wants Cameron to lighten up. You know what I mean? But I, what I think that Ferris fails to recognize is the severity of what will happen the if this car comes back any other way than it left. And as soon as they pulled out, he was fucked. Because you can't redo the, you can't drive the car backwards to take off the miles. But they and, don't know that. Well, yeah. But uh, even Cameron said, my dad knows everything about this car. Yeah, he had, you know, I didn't catch it, I think, the first couple times I saw this movie, that Cameron's dad had rebuilt this car. Yeah. So he had originally put it all together, basically probably from, you know, a broken down version. Sure. The trio leave the car with parking attendants who promptly go on a long joyride. The three explore the city, with Ferris taking care to stay out of the view from his father. They visit the Art Institute of Chicago, use deception to dine at an upscale restaurant, go to a Chicago Cubs baseball game, and attend the Von Steuben Day Parade, with Ferris jumping on a float and performing Twist and Shout by the Beatles. Rooney prowls the Bueller home for Ferris, becoming victim to several pratfalls. Janine skips class and returns home to confront Ferris, but finds Rooney instead. Shocked by his appearance, she knocks him unconscious and calls the police. Rooney regains consciousness and leaves, and the police arrest Jeannie for making a false report. Going into this parking attendance scene, I think this is one of those scenes we've talked about before, scenes that might not hold up or might not be you know, repeatable these days where Ferris asked the parking attendant if he speaks English. I thought about that for like half a second when it popped up, but then it just blew out of my, yeah. my head. I, back then I thought it was funny. Nowadays, a little bit of cringy. Well, I guess. Did it bother you at all, professor? No. Well, there, there you go. go. Did you know uh, that there is talk uh, in August of 2022 of doing a, I guess what's called a spinoff interquel? They're going to take uh, guys, that actors that look like those parking attendants and make a movie that's made basically, I think, for one of the streaming channels. I think it might be Peacock. I'm not sure. No, excuse me. Uh, They're making it for Paramount Plus that will basically be what those two parking attendants did during the day with that car. Oh, interesting. I never heard that. Me neither. We have Mother coming home, and she checks in on Ferris, and we see how delightfully... uh, sophisticated the ruse is for ferris being in bed i have to say it was such a wonderful reveal to have mother check back in you know she she hears that nine times and she decides to peek in on him again and then we get to watch the sophistication of of the counterweight of the trophy that roll that rolls the body and it's just like oh that is so clever yeah yeah 
my thoughts with that scene, first of all, as the the weight of the trophies coming down and with her pulling that door open, wouldn't it kind of be pulling on the door so that the door would want to open up more? The second thing is, and I maybe it was just my mother, but if my mother came up to check on me, she would come in and want to take my temperature. Man, different moms, man. I guess so. Yeah. Because if she goes in to take the temperature, movie's over. Yeah. Then we have Ferris and the gang. They they start out at the Chicago Tower. This is where they actually cut a scene uh, where you have Cameron looking out the window, his head against the window, and he says, I see my dad down there. They were going to cut to a scene that his dad was actually down there looking up. So that's kind of where that comment came from. Yeah. And then we cut to the Chicago Stock Exchange where we have an interesting conversation where Ferris is posing the possibility of marriage. Yeah. And that was that was an interesting little conversation. But I enjoyed the lightheartedness that we get out of Cameron, you know, doing his little his little drop sound. And then I'll give you two good reasons. My mother and my father. I also like when he's doing the hand gestures like the traders down there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a cute little moment. Mm-hmm. I thought it was actually poignant that he's taught when he's because we're starting to see into the psyche of Cameron of why he is the way he is and how he mentions, you know, my mother, my father, they hate each other. And just that's, you know, you can see how he's just got a loneliness to him. Sure. The the onion is starting to be peeled back. Oh, yeah. But I got that right away because he when he calls fair or when Ferris calls him the very first time, he says, is your mother in the room? Mm-hmm. And he says, no, she's in Decatur. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. she's coming home. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that tells me right there that this is a very distant, broken family. Mm-hmm. And then after the stock exchange, they end up at the restaurant, and did, this is a pretty famous scene. Did you catch the name of the restaurant? Shade something or other. Did you catch it, Professor? I did not understand until this time around the significance of the name of the restaurant. It is Shay Keys. Shakey's. Shakey's. I fucking love that, dude. I've never known that, and I've seen... Ferris Bueller's a bazillion times. Yeah, I never paid attention to it before. Interesting. What did you think of this whole scene where uh, the ape Froman and all that with the maitre d' or whatever he is? I thought it was uh, funny that they bring back the phone gag. You know, two lines. Sure. Working the angles. And yeah, it works. It works. I don't know if, you know, Abe, at some point, Abe Froman does come in for lunch. See, that's what I was always thinking, too. What happens when Abe shows up? Then the, the maitre d's going to be like, mm. I tried to watch for it, and I thought, well, maybe Ferris saw a name on the list of someone who already missed their reservation time or was late for it, and so assumed this person's not coming in. Because oh, it, it was very odd. There is a scene that was cut from here. I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, the maitre d. After, you know, Ferris uh, gets the table and everything, they're sitting at the table, he tries to get one up on them by serving them food, and they end up eating something that they don't know what it is, and is revealed later to be pancreas that they ate. And so the maitre, you know, the maitre d' or the waiter, they're all, you know, happy with themselves that they tricked them into eating pancreas. So later on, when Ferris is recounting what they've done that day, did you notice he mentioned we ate pancreas? Yeah. So that was to that scene. John Hughes cut that scene because he didn't want to have anybody get one up on Ferris. And then, of course, at this restaurant, he's in the bathroom narrating to us once again. And once he leaves, dad comes out of the bathroom stall. Of course, dad is at the exact same restaurant. At the same time. And it is kind of clever how Ferris does point it out to the audience. Yeah, he he calls it out so that doesn't seem so weird. Yeah. 
I mean, it's still weird, but it's still very much convenient. And I got to ask one quick question, and it'll come up a little bit later as well, but I'll get the ball rolling now. Uh, has Sloan never met Mr. Bueller? It's not revealed to us one way or the other necessarily, but clearly she seems to recognize him at that critical moment. Yeah, and you know, and how I, Ferris's dad just must be aloof. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Sure, because if she recognizes him, why doesn't he recognize her? Right. We have one other little moment that we flash back to Jeannie. And Jeannie, she is now on the hunt. She wants to find Rooney because she is determined to take down Ferris. And she's going to rat him out. And coincidentally, so is Rooney. And so Rooney has stepped it up a notch. He now has left campus. And so this is a vendetta for him. This is personal now. Do you think the, oh no, do they give us the name of the pizza joint he walks into? I don't remember the pizza joint. Do you think it was a Shakey's? I guess it could have been. been. (laughs) What what did you think of coming up behind that that young lady and saying, your ass is mine? Rooney does not function well around other people. He is the Lord over his school, and the people below him are people below him. They are not his peers or his equals in any way. And he is socially inept in handling other people in the real world. And Jeffrey Jones did a great job playing creepy. He was definitely creepy with that mustache and just the way, even the way he talks to the gal who thinking it's Ferris, just fucking creepy. Well, he was kind of a creepy guy in real life. Not was. Or is. Yeah. I mean, he's a registered sex offender now, so Mm -hmm. not to throw a fucking rain cloud over this movie. Thank you. You're welcome. Did you know that? I had heard that somewhere in the past and I'd forgotten all about it until just now. (laughs) So again, you're welcome, buddy. Was he more creepy in this movie or Howard the Duck? I don't remember Howard the Duck. I may have intentionally blocked it from had, my memory. You had human duck sex in that movie. Okay, but that wasn't... <laughs> we didn't know anything about this when Ferris Bueller came out. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't until... Wow, times have changed. It wasn't until, I think, 2002 that he got registered, but I don't think it was even until 2009 until it became public information. Yeah, well, either way, fucking creep. The whole little bit with the cab outside. I How brazen to be standing immediately behind your dad like that. And it, steal his cab. But so, it all works out because so with the brazen. timing of the movie. Oh, I agree with you 100% there, uh, I, Professor. I could, I could never have the kahunas to do that. Yeah, I know. You know, I always question how the other cabs showed up so quick. But then as I've gotten older, I've been to those places where all the cabs are lined up. They just line up. Yeah. Absolutely. So that makes sense. Hey, sometimes and in movies, sometimes it just happens. They go to the Cubs game because this is where Rooney is watching the TV oh, and, that's right, and that's right. drying himself off. And I love, this is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Uh, who's playing? Or no, who's, uh, or what's the score? And he, they say, uh, nothing, nothing. It's tied, 0-0. Zero, zero. Who's winning? Yeah. I, the that, Bears. The Bears. And of course, in the background, if you're watching, you're seeing Ferris catching the baseball. Oh, naturally. And at the last second when they cut away from Ferris, then Rooney looks up. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the Cubs game. I like the crack he makes. You know, if we played by the rules, we'd be in gym right now. And then the laugh that they both give. Yeah. I thought that was sweet. Hey, bada, bada, bada. Swing, bada. Rooney shows up at Ferris's house, and we have another level of sophistication when Rooney rings the doorbell. Who is this Ferris guy? Is he part of the A-team? 
He just thinks of everything, apparently. He changes the answer machine messages, you know, to that mortuary, even like another answer machine. Ingenious. But yeah, just, you know, it's like, oh my God, he thought of this too? Freaking genius. And then he rings the doorbell again. And Rooney actually has a conversation with him for a half a second. And then he's like, he figures it out. Oh, this kid's fucking with me. And then he sees the doggy door. And he puts his head into the door, and naturally the Buellers have a big old fucking dog. Oh, was it a Rottweiler? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Well, he lost his shoe right before that in the mud. What did you think of that bit? I was okay with it, because this is the start, this is the descent into his complete upside down, right? The, the, Spart- the Spartan desk with nothing on it, and now here he is in the mud, loses his shoe, and this is the beginning of his downward slide where his world gets turned upside down. And I got to tell you, I'd have a fucking wet shoe for the rest of the day. Fuck that. It took, it flashed me back to, you know, playing in the woods near my house, and I think once a month I'd come home with just one shoe because it would get stuck in the mud somewhere. And you never went and got it? No. Oh, well. What are you so, going to do? Pissed my mom off. I would never oh, I ever stick my head through a, a dog flap like that in somebody's house. <laughs> never. <laughs> and now we are at the museum. What did you guys think of this whole bit? I thought it was cute the way they kind of started it out with showing the long line of kids and they're kind of holding hands with the kids on the field trip day or something. It was kind of cute. And then the music and everything. It was kind of a long, slow part, though. It was. Uh Definitely kind of slow down just a little bit here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're not here for long. We're here long enough to watch Cameron uh, stare at a picture. Do you know what picture that was? No. The painting that Cameron is admiring is called Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jete or Jet, something like that, by uh, George Surratt. We apologize for the butchery. Yes. Have you ever seen that painting? It's just that it's all little dots and it's actually a pretty cool painting. There was actually a uh, Broadway musical made just about that painting called a Sunday or called Sunday at the park with George. Well, there you go. Immediately after this, we have the cab scene where uh, Ferris is talking about, we ate pancreas and he's trying to convince Cameron that they have had a very good day. But for some reason, Cameron's, he's all clenched up and like, what is wrong with you? Doesn't he say something along the lines of, well, we haven't done anything fun. Well, yeah. That's well, that's what he starts with. Yeah. Yeah. But during this whole bit between Ferris and Cameron, Cameron freezes up Look because he notices over there. Mr. Bueller in the cab right next door. Delightful one shot, how the camera swings to the left and swings right back and Cameron's and, and Ferris, they're completely down down below, and Sloan is completely in place. I just love how quickly that changed, just the one shot. Yeah. And this this is what I was talking about earlier. How does Mr. Bueller not recognize Sloan? Is she wearing Clark Kent sunglasses? I don't know. That hides all identity? Maybe. Doesn't she, like, blow him a kiss here? She's totally flirting with him, too. So I think right there, he's like, oh, my God, I can't even look at her, you know, and all that. But he's looking. Yeah, and I like how, you know, what is he doing now? Uh, He's licking the glass. Yeah, well, obviously she was just fucking with him. Yeah. Yeah, and and but he immediately turns back with raised eyebrows, and he's back into the newspaper. Yeah, but how does he not know it's her? I, I totally smell what you're cooking. And so now they make their way to a parade. Yeah, and, and uh, interestingly enough, we do hear little tidbits of Donka Shane elsewhere 
in the movie. We we hear Ferris singing Don Cushane in the shower at the beginning. We hear Sloan, or not not Sloan, but we hear uh, Jeannie uh, singing it as she's descending the staircase as she leaves the police station. And I believe Rooney sings it too. Mm-hmm. He yeah. does sing it when he's waiting outside of Ferris's house before he rings the bell. He's singing. He's either singing it or humming Don Cushane. I think he's singing it. Um, yeah, I noticed that it, there was a reoccurring theme of Don Cushane. I tried to look up why John Hughes might have put that song into this movie. And I read an article that said that this movie is supposed to represent rebellion and young rebellion against, you know, older adult rules. And the song itself is basically, the translation is, thank you very much. Uh, And it's basically thanking everybody for everything that they do. And so the idea was it was supposed to be kind of an irony that we have a song that they're all singing, which is thank you at the same time where Ferris is rebelling against all the rules. Yeah, sure. Sure. And uh, so Rooney has some flowers delivered and this is where uh, we get our F bomb. And did he have the flowers delivered or was that just the people at the high school having it delivered? It well, was, it was the faculty and staff of the oh, school wishing right, Ferris. Well, right. And um, so then he has to go take care of the dog. This was one of my big questions about this movie. They show the dog passed out with the flowers all around him, and I think a broken vase. Did he conk the dog and knock the dog out? That's exactly what happened. I, I originally thought that maybe there was something in the plant that put the dog to sleep after eating or drinking, but... That's kind of what I thought, too, but now that you say that, Professor, I guess that makes more sense. So... This was almost a puppy snuff film. Yeah, does that knock it down for you a little it, bit? It does a little bit. A little he, bit. You know, he... A little bit. Beat on that dog. You little fucker. Just before this happens, though, we get probably one of the most iconic moments of the movie. Twist and shout? Yeah, we have we have the parade happening with Ferris all of a sudden on the float. Well, I love the fact that they kind of start that out with just Sloan and Cameron walking through the crowd. Looking not, for Ferris. Yeah, that he's somehow disappeared and Cameron's immediately jumps to, well, he's ditched us. This is a Ferris joke on us. Yeah, but it wasn't. Mm-mm. And he was on the float. And first they sing Donkashane, mm-hmm. which Julie had to watch, you know, watching this movie had to question, how did he get on the float? Like, how did he do that? And I'm thinking, they just thought he was a cute kid or apparently he knows everybody. Did you see that wad of cash that he pulled out of his pocket yeah, early from the bonds that we didn't get the scene for? That's how he did it. He bought his way up there. And then we move into Twist and Shout. Do you know Paul McCartney didn't like this part? Mm. He, uh, he licensed it. He said it was okay for them to use it, but he didn't like the fact that the brass played. Yeah, and so it it really hurt John Hughes' feelings that he had offended. Could you imagine mm-hmm. offending the King Beetle? Mm-hmm. You know, but it makes complete sense. They're at a parade. Do you know how they got all the crowd to be there? They put out a casting call. They basically put an ad in the paper saying, if you want to be in a John Hughes movie, show up at this time at this location. So they got 10,000 people to show up. And I thought it was interesting to read, especially during the Twist and Shout song, that when they flash over to like the construction workers and the window washer and the people that are dancing like that, that was all people just dancing to the music. That wasn't scripted. That wasn't, you know, they just captured the footage and used the footage. The only scripted dances, I think, were the one that Ferris did on the the actual uh, float and the people that do the thriller dance on the stairs. Yeah, very fun. And, you know, it, it has a lot of energy to it. And I just... I, I just uh, shake my head with, and of course Ferris can pull this off. Yeah, I love Absolutely. how I love how afterwards 
I think it was a Cameron or Sloan. I think Cameron said, you're pinched now. Someone had to have seen you. And he's like, well, he's absolutely right. Who, who would think I would show up on a float? Jeannie comes home and she is uber pissed as soon as she discovers the mannequin in bed. I, I knew it. I love that she kicks the mannequin and it sits up. Well, she, kicks she kicks the, the door, door open. She, well, yeah, she kicks the door open and, and the mannequin up. sits up. Yeah. Isn't it supposed to turn to the side? Or do you think that the velocity that Janine kicks the door with throws it off trajectory? That's exactly what I thought. I think happened. that weight yeah. hit, or the trophy weight hit the ground so fast that it really yanked it up. Oh, sure. Meanwhile, Rooney, he decides to sneak inside. Well, it's because Jeannie lives, leaves the front door unlocked, so he then follows her inside the house, which, again, why the hell would he do that? That's a breaking and an entering. Yeah, see, he's off the rails here. Completely off the rails. He needs to catch Ferris Bueller red-handed. At all costs, apparently now. But even if Talk he, about obsessed. I keep thinking that even if he caught Ferris at this point, he's going to jail. Oh, he I mean, very he, well could be. I mean, they would basically be at a standpoint in that, yes, he's caught him, or you know, even if he's not there, but he also did break into the house. Yeah. And then you get the bit where uh, Janine hears something. Ferris. And Mueller. And then they confront each other. This was the second scene that I was talking about. I talked about earlier that they did some quick edit to give that that kiss scene a little bit of a longer scene. This was another one where in the first take, she only kicked him once. But of course, fancy editing, they made it look like the three kicks, which I thought were perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I took it. Mm-hmm. And the flashback and forth as Rooney falls a little bit. Jeannie, she rounds the corner screaming, and then his head hits the floor. And then Jeannie, she's running up the stairs, and then it shows his feet, you know, upright. And then Jeannie one more time, and then the feet collapse apart, and he's now out cold. So fun. And then Jeannie calls the cops. And of um, course, in, in the way that Jeannie talks to everyone is she's completely rude to them. Yep. And, you know, they're like, they don't believe her or whatever, but they send cops out anyway. I like how she gets on the intercom and basically said, whoever's in the house, I have my father's revolver and a scorching case of herpes. Yeah. Upon collecting the Ferrari and heading home, Ferris and Cameron discover that the car's mileage has gone up significantly. Cameron becomes semi-catatonic from shock, but wakes up after falling into a pool. Back at Cameron's house, Ferris jacks up the car and runs it in reverse to rewind the odometer. This fails, and Cameron destroys the car out of anger over his domineering father. Ferris offers to take the blame, but Cameron declines, deciding to stand up to his father. After walking Sloan home, Ferris realizes his parents will be returning soon. He races on foot through the neighborhood, but is nearly hit by Jeannie, who is driving their mother home. Mrs. Bueller fails to notice Ferris while Jeannie does. Ferris makes it home first, but Rooney confronts him before he can get back inside. Seeing the two through the window, Jeannie has a change of heart and allows Ferris to come inside, claiming that Ferris was at the hospital for his illness. As Rooney flees from the Ferris's Rottweiler, Ferris rushes back to his bedroom to await his parents. They find him in bed and believe he had been there all day, further suggesting to take the next day off as well. Roll credits. I'm not sure if it 
happens right before this or after they go and pick up the car. But what did you think of all the stuff going on with Jeannie at the police station and Charlie Sheen appearing? Oh, I thought it was a fine scene. Um, you know, this is where Jeannie comes to the realization that she shouldn't give a shit what her brother does mm -hmm. and she should only worry about herself. And it comes in the form of Charlie Sheen, who I thought was pretty funny in this, even though it's a few seconds. But just his interaction with Jennifer Grey, I thought they played well off each other. Did you know that he stayed up for 48 hours before filming to give himself that that look of that drug at, drug addled person? Yeah, yeah, it worked. He was only there for a day. It was a one-day shoot, and the uh, the shooting, it went pretty much flawlessly, and the uh, the character of the druggie, he is the only person that stands up to Jeannie and calls it straight, and he doesn't get he, he doesn't get ruffled by her in any way. And this is startling for Jeannie because she she's not used to having somebody do that, and she has the stark realization that what he's saying is the truth. Right. And she realizes she has to take it down a notch or two because what he's talking about with Ferris, she has, for the first time in the movie, been humbled before this. She's just been an arrogant little princess that is condescending and self-righteous. Right. Did you know there's a whole backstory to Charlie Sheen's character that came out in a documentary? I did not. Uh, according to Inside Story, which was a documentary that came out in 1986, Charlie Sheen was playing a character named Garth Volbeck. And I don't know if you noticed, but the Volbeck name kind of appears throughout this movie. It's on the tow truck that tows uh, Rooney's car away. The, there was actually a scene, I don't know if it was cut or not, but Ferris's mother, you know, is a real estate agent who's showing a house. She's showing it to the Volbecks. Uh, and I guess the whole story behind Garth Wahlbeck is that him and Ferris were friends in the eighth grade and Garth's family was pretty messed up, similar to the way Cameron's was. And Ferris didn't help Garth, didn't, you know, didn't see the signs and didn't help him. And that's why Garth ended up in the state that he is. He basically felt like he failed Garth. And so that was kind of a storyline that was added because John Hughes loves to give background stories to characters was kind of one of Ferris's driving motives to fix Cameron because he failed Garth. There's something other that we get as well with this little druggy scene. And it's how this moment uh, concludes. I think there's somebody you should talk to. If you say Ferris Bueller, you are losing a testicle. Oh, so you know him. And what we get with this indirectly is apparently Ferris is pretty relatable because if he's relatable to this guy and then the freshmen that are on the phone in the beginning, he seems to be pretty upfront that he's willing to talk to everybody and anybody and he treats everybody and anybody apparently the same way. And that apparently has what has made him be such a likable character in my opinion. Sure. I mean, they have safe Ferris on the fucking reader board at Wrigley Field. And on the big water tower. Yeah. One thing I love about Charlie Sheen in this scene is when uh, Jeannie says things like, you know, you can shove your thumb up your ass, that Charlie Sheen kind of turns and looks at his thumb. And when she says the comment that you're going to lose a testicle, he kind of just looks down for a sec. I mean, I love just those little interactions that they worked into the movie. Yeah, it was great. Before this, we do have the gang heading back home in the Ferrari and Cameron finally looks at ease. <laughs> I think it's got to be because 
he's got the Ferrari back and it's going to go back home. And he's finally at ease and starting to loosen up. And of course we have the reveal of the odometer and then Cameron goes catatonic. Semi catatonic. Semi. Mm -hmm. What'd you guys think of this whole bit? When he goes catatonic, I, I think that part of the reason why he goes catatonic, of course, is what happens to the car. But I think another thing that happens with this is on some level, I'm guessing that Cameron probably has affection for Sloan because he's probably around her all the time. He and, and Ferris, they hang out all the time. And I'm sure that they're like the three musketeers. And with this, I think that he's enjoying having a little bit of tenderness from Sloan as she, as she more or less kind of sort of continues to soothe him by, by stroking the side of his head and gently asking him if he's all right. And then we cut to Ferris and he starts talking to us again about the future and wondering what the future is going to hold and and what are they going to do? Because Sloan has another year of school and uh, I don't know. I I just think that that part of what is happening with Cameron here is that he's appreciating a little bit of his own time with Sloan. I do like how he describes it after he wakes up later that, yeah, it looked like he was in a catatonic state, but he was more of meditating and doing some kind of self-discovery within himself. Yeah. So interestingly enough, during this scene where, where Ferris is talking to us, it is one of the earliest scenes that they start shooting. And, and uh, Matthew Broderick, he is uncomfortable in looking at the camera because he is able to see his reflection in the lens and it kind of sort of messes with him. And so he really had to uh, discipline himself and understand that as he talks at the camera and he can see his reflection, that he's got to learn to work through that and keep himself on task of being Ferris rather than paying attention. I can see myself. And right. It, and so it was, it was an interesting thing because he spends a lot of time talking to the camera throughout this movie. Why they go to the swimming pool and the jacuzzi. Whose Who house was that? I don't... <laughs> I think it was none of their houses, and Ferris just found a house, and they decided that they were going to go use it. That's exactly what I think, too. I kept trying to decide if maybe that was Cameron's house. No way. Maybe, because they showed the cars, but the cars could have been off in a separate little you know, house or whatever that was, you know, garage that was built. And then Cameron, you know, we saw his bed and everything. It looked like a normal house. So maybe that was Cameron's house that was off to the side that we never got to see or... Yeah, but Cameron's bedroom has those floor-to-ceiling glass windows just like the garage does. Yeah, there was no way that was Cameron's house. No way. And it definitely wasn't Ferris's house. It couldn't have been Sloane's house because she was in her underwear. She would have gone and put on a bikini. That's right. So, yeah, hilarious. When we have Cameron go into the pool and he looks up, this is where we know that Cameron is doing okay because he looks up are they what are they going to do are they yeah he, he keeps checking to see if if yep. someone's coming in yet well at first i didn't think he was doing okay because you notice when he first does the header into it he blows out all the air out of his lungs and i thought oh he's just basically decided he's done he's out he's checking out he blew out all the air in his lungs so he could sit at the bottom you know but he didn't try to go back up. I mean, it's like right, he right. He wanted to go sit at the bottom to see if anyone would come in after oh. him. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to drown yourself, yeah, without something to keep you down. He would have shot back up at mm. some point. Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. And then Ferris gets all pissed. What? You were faking? 
That was the one moment I think this movie that really should, you know, John Hughes left in showed somebody got something over on Ferris. And certainly part of that. And also that Ferris got, you know, he, he didn't plan on this. He, he didn't know that he was going to have the Ferrari debacle happen the way that it did with all the mileage. And this certainly went off task. And then thinking that the Cameron is going to be messed up, severely messed up because of this. Yeah. He, he was, he was upset about that. Yeah, I that think first time we saw him afraid. Yeah. And so Cameron wakes up and uh, him and Sloan and Ferris, they kind of have this heart to heart and, and Cameron decides I'm going to not let my dad push me around anymore. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll take the blame for this. What'd you think of that whole awkward little bit of Cameron? Did you watch me while I was changing? I just dialogue. Okay. I just thought that was just a weird little insertion of a, okay. Yeah, that seemed odd. I'm, I'm not embarrassed. Well, she was curious, yeah. you know, cause she just changed in front of him and mm-hmm. she wanted to know if he saw her mm-hmm. and you know, kudos for Cameron for not lying. I like his, he didn't really say anything, but he just kind of smiled. Oh, come on. He said it. He said it with that smile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, they're back at the garage. They're trying to run the car in reverse to take off the miles, which doesn't work. And then uh, they, they, they figured out that it's not working. So why not turn the car off? Well, Ferris's first thing was, is, well, I, I'm just going to have to crack open the speedometer. And then I was thinking, oh, good luck with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, you know. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing, too, of, you know, at what point are you going to just turn the car off because it's got to be filling with fumes and and then and and, running and gas and all that. Yeah. And then Cameron starts to kick it and beat it. And you can see that it's uh, wavering on the jack. Yeah. We know. I mean, we know what's about to happen. Of course we do. And then, you know, Cameron goes we, to get that one last kick, but doesn't do it. We didn't know how spectacularly that was going to happen though. Either did the director. Apparently. Did you hear that whole story? Yeah. That apparently it was just supposed to go out the window and fall into the backyard. They didn't know, but that's what they thought was going to happen. And it overshot the yard and went onto a fence into the neighbor's yard. Oh, well, yeah. There you go. I like the shot where uh, Cameron leans on it and it takes off and the camera is the car. And it pulls back. And it pulls back. It's a quick shot. Yeah. But Alan Rook's expression is like, oh, shit, this just happened. You know what I mean? I, I, a good I like his response afterward. What did I just do? Yeah. Yeah. You killed the car. And then, so uh, this is where Cameron says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to take it on the chin. Well, this is where the first time, you know, I felt like Ferris kind of does something that's not so selfish. It's not about him. Because the first thing he says to Cameron is, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take the blame for this. You're not taking the blame for this. Yeah, so he was ready to go down. Not because he was trying to be the better man. It's because he's fucking, he knows it's his fault. Yeah. He felt guilty. He is scared shitless because this is absolutely what was not supposed to happen. The first Mm. time today, things went catastrophically wrong. And I guarantee you, Ferris, as a character, is counting on the fact that Cameron's going to say, no, dude, I got this. I didn't didn't feel that because I felt like this was something that, you know, wasn't really caused by Ferris. It was caused by Cameron pushing on the car and hitting the car and doing all that damage. And yeah, and I felt like Ferris was willing to take, you know, this is going to be the first time he realized he can't talk his way out of it and he was going to take the blame. You say this isn't because of Ferris, but who makes Cameron take the car? Well, he makes him take the car, 
But you don't take the car. Ferris, this never happens. Ferris brought the car back, of course, with more miles. But but if you don't take the car, this doesn't happen. Yeah. I so think, well, I think it was in the plan for him to take the car if he could, and he just got a lot more than he bargained for. And I think that ultimately Ferris was willing to impale himself on that sword. Mm-hmm. Well, because he had no fucking choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, realistically, if he if he's any any kind of a friend. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He and he does. He does recognize that this is his fault, but I think he does it out of guilt. Oh, sure. So this may, of course, sound sappy, but I'd like to think that, you know, I always try to think of you know, what maybe happened next after the movie ended, things like that. And Cameron's talking about standing up to his father and that, he, you know, he's they're going to have it out They're They're going to deal with their issues. And one of the things I brought up earlier in this movie, and the reason why I brought it up was that uh, Cameron's father had rebuilt this car. Now, my thought is maybe he can do it again, that he's going to rebuild this car again, and maybe Cameron standing up to him forces them to rebuild it together, and maybe they work out their problems. Yeah, maybe. And I'd like to think that maybe that's where this movie went. Well, then you should go ahead and think that. Okay. The, uh, the fact that we have the epiphany by Cameron that his dad has put in so much more time, affection, care into the car than he has to Cameron. This is his, his uh, epiphany that I'm going to force my dad to talk to me. And that's why the dents happen. And those dents means that that's the point of no return. And dad and I, we are going to have to have a talk with that. What happens to the car after that? Well, that's... That certainly wasn't his intention by any means, but now he's he's he squares himself and he and he sets himself saying, you know, in essence that he, this is going to change the relationship between him and his dad for the rest of their life. Yeah, he oh, wants yeah. this. He he wants to deal with this. Yeah, yeah. Well, his dad came home, kicked him out of the house, and you know, Cameron is now addicted to crack. That's how that ends. So there you go. In 1986? Oh, yeah. Crack is huge in 1986. I thought it was cocaine. And so Ferris notices the time. Which is what? About 6 o'clock? What about mom? close to 6 o'clock? Mom picking Jeannie up from the police station. Yeah. She's just, she goes in there. She's all pissed off. And then she makes her leave. I like how she's talking to the police officer and going over all the charges. And in the background, you kind of see Jeannie slowly lean in and starts making out with Charlie Sheen. Do you see the officer's name? No. I don't remember his name. Officer Shermer. Huh? Oh, that's Shermer, right. Shermer, Illinois. Yep. yep. Yeah. And oh, and let Ferris know that everybody down here at the station's pulling for him. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves Ferris. Uh, so now we get to the ending bit. Ferris has to make it home. What'd you guys think of this whole race to... From the time Ferris sees Jeannie and then the whole race to get home along with the dad and this, the timing of all of this, what did you guys think of this whole ending bit? I thought it was actually set up pretty well. Uh, I like the running. I like how the dad gets behind the old lady who's swerving around them because we've all been behind that. And I really liked when Ferris runs through the house, says, uh, oh, smells great, and then runs out the back and the kids are out there and he's like, dinner's ready and... Then as he passes the girls in the bikinis, he stops, comes back, and totally pulls a Ferris Bueller. Hi, I'm Ferris Bueller. And just that whole scene, I just thought it was a fun little, I don't know if you call it a montage scene or what, but him just running through the whole thing was was pretty humorous. It was not a montage. 
But the music was snappy. It was catchy. It was March of the Swivelheads, I think is what it's called. I believe you're correct, good sir. But yeah, very very snappy music. And we get to watch the back and forth going, uh, the chase is on. Jeannie with the police officer. (laughs) The police in hot pursuit. and, And dad, you know... The old, the little old lady, you know, swerving down the street. He's like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> Get the picture of that little blue-haired cone and her eyeballs through the through the steering wheel. How she has a license still, I, I have no idea. I like how Jean Jeannie kind of reminded me of summer school. Is yelling at her mom to stop yelling at her. She, you know, I you don't can't yell at the drive driver. like this. Yeah, Ferris makes it home. Jeannie makes it at the same time, and then the dad pulls in after Jeannie and mom. Well, it's convenient so he can basically stall the mom. Exactly. Exactly what I thought. She, you know, he gets out of the car and goes, how's your day? And Jeannie's already off into the house. She's going to catch Ferris. And uh, the mom stops and turns. And this is where she talks about the Volbeck deal, that uh, Jeannie just cost her uh, that that sale. What are we going to do? We should shoot her. <laughs> the dad's response is just so matter of fact. And so... uh Ferris makes it to the door. He The door's locked. He remembers that there's a key under the mat, and he goes down, and naturally, Rooney has it. And they have their confrontation, and then Jeannie sees what's going on through the window, opens the door. Well, first she smiles like she's glad he got caught. And then I think she's going to get his comeuppance. Yeah, and then she starts hearing Charlie Sheen's words of, let it go. Yeah. And then she opens the door, and she saves her brother's ass. Totally saves. And, and what a turn. What a turn. I was not expecting that at all because her her whole drive throughout this movie is that Ferris should not get away with us. And Ferris can't believe it either. I love that look on Broderick's face during that whole scene when he keeps looking back and forth between Rooney and her, like just that little smile on his face, like, oh my God. Yeah, like, this is going to work. She's doing this for me and take that, fucker. And then he looks at... He looks at us, the audience, for just a moment. And then he takes off. And he runs upstairs, gets into bed. And then in the meantime, Jeannie looks at Rooney and says, Oh, hey, you left your wallet in here when you broke into my house. And then she throws the wallet. You dropped your wallet. Yeah. So, And then that look of, on Rooney's face. Yep. And then all the flowers taking up the whole front. Well, I noticed that, too. And it's funny that this was the first time watching this movie that I noticed that there were flowers in every room of the fucking house. I did like the return to the gag of the dog where, you know, Jeannie throws the wall. You hear it plop into the mud. And who does that wake up? It wakes up the dog. The dog. Yeah. So we get that dog gag again. So it's kind of a nice little running gag. Well, he got his come up and stew because he knocked the dog out. Mm-hmm. So now he got eaten by mm-hmm. the dog. And so mom and dad come up. They swoon over Ferris, how wonderful he is. But before, uh, right before they open the door, he, and Ferris is like, what the, oops, you know? And it's his ball that he caught at the baseball game. And he had that baseball in his pocket this entire movie. How come we never saw it? Baseballs aren't in fucking conspicuous. Anybody? Maybe Sloan had it in her purse earlier. I was thinking maybe it was in his jacket pocket, and then he, when he started home, he ended up putting it in his pocket while he was running, so that way it would Must not have been leave a his pocket. Scene. Whatever the case may be, he had the ball. He hits the fucking power button. The snoring stops. The door opens, and everything is wonderful. Well, I thought it was convenient too. The fact that he just ran home means that he would probably be overheated, which was perfect when they came in to fill his head. He's still warm. 
he should feel just a little guilty for pulling the wool so heavily over his parents' eyes as they just gush about him. Oh, Ferris. Yeah, he's all smiles and, you know, so proud of himself. And probably at the same exact moment, Cameron's getting the shit kicked out of him because of that car. Mm-hmm. So, Well, the whole point of the movie was that it was supposed to connect us with a youth who is bucking the rules and breaking adults' rules on him. So we were supposed to be cheering the fact that Ferris got away with the whole thing and pulled one over on his parents. Yeah. What do you think of that last line that he says to us, the audience of life moves pretty fast, that whole thing? What do you mean? What do I think of it? What would you think of the way they ended that with that line? Oh, it was, it was fine. It, it had to end that way. And it, it ends on a freeze frame naturally. Did you know that that line originally was scripted to be, yeah, life is a carousel, a great big ball, a big, a great big crazy ball of pure living, breathing joy and delight. You got to get one. I think they, they went with the right line because Hughes changed that apparently like the day they were filming it, he came up with the life moves pretty fast. Yeah. During, during the credits, we have Rooney getting onto the school bus. This, when you talk about timing and everything, this is the scene of timing that bothers me. What do you think of it? Six o'clock at night and he's getting on a bus? Yeah. Why are school kids just getting home at six o'clock at night? Maybe it was a pep bus that was at some sort of a other school function and they're getting a ride back to their school. Maybe it was the bus home from all the special activities that happen after school. So you have the AV club, the chess club, the math club. Maybe it was all of those students who were doing extracurricular things leaving. Do you want to know the truth of that scene? Well, it's a cut scene. Yeah. The scene was originally supposed to be take place right after Rooney's car got towed. He was going to catch the bus at three o'clock. Uh, but they decided to end the movie with that scene after they'd already filmed it. Yeah. And so Rooney's failure is now complete because he is completely disheveled. His suit is in tatters. His shoes look awful. He looks like he's been in a fight. And he has to go and sit among the people that he feels that he is the Lord over. Yep. But it is ending with Rooney giving us a fourth wall break. That's the last shot. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, until the end yeah. stinger. Yeah. Right. Which would go on to be mimicked by... Everybody. Everybody. Yeah, especially know. even in Deadpool. He copied that whole scene. Yeah. And that's Ferris Bueller. Speaking of days off, you know who never took a day off? Uh, Who, John? A certain ring bearer. Now it's time for John's moment. This is the point in the podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. Frodo would be Cameron. The day off was engineered to loosen up Cameron before he goes off to college. The movie, in my opinion, is really about Cameron's journey to break out of his depressed shell. So that would make Ferris his Samwise, but he's also the Lord of the Rings Trinity. He is Samwise, Gandalf, and Aragorn. He serves as the support to Cameron, even pushing him when he doesn't want to be pushed, but needs to be. 
He's also the wizard at making things happen with unnatural luck and a leader without fear ready to charge into battle. He's the one who puts Cameron on this journey and accompanies him along the way and in the end even tries to protect him when the car gets damaged. Sloane would be our Legolas. She is loyal to the Fellowship and especially to Aragorn. She also has her own unique special set of skills that the Fellowship has need of at different times throughout the movie. Merry and Pippin, they would be represented by the two parking attendants. They were mainly added to the movie for a bit of comedy, but it's also their taking of the car for a joyride that puts the extra mileage on the Ferrari that later pushes Cameron over the edge, which would in turn help him complete his journey. So that makes our fellowship Cameron, Ferris, Sloane, and the two parking attendants. Gollum and Ferris Bueller would be Ferris's sister, Jeannie. For most of the movie, Jeannie only cares about herself. It's not until the very end of the movie that she casts off her own issues and destroys the selfish version of herself. Saruman the White is represented by Ed Rooney. He works for the system on behalf of the children he's in charge of. He's supposed to represent the greater good. The The greater greater good. good. But takes it upon himself to spend time working against the kids. He made it his personal mission to make an example out of Ferris rather than work with him to reach a better understanding of those he serves. Sauron in this movie would be the system. The system says Ferris should be in school. So Ferris fights back against the system with his day off. So what would be the precious? What would be the one ring? In Ferris Bueller's day off, the ring is represented by the Ferrari as a physical representative as a physical representation of what Cameron's father loves the most. It also represents an object of great desire and power and has the ability to corrupt those who possess it. Ferris is willing to go to great lengths to use the car, even manipulating his friend. Even folks in the presence of the car are tempted by it, as with the parking attendants. It's not until Cameron destroys the car that he is free from the fear and the corruption it instills in him and ready to stand up to his father. And there you have it, my comparison of Lord of the Rings and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bring on the grades. You going to go? You want me to go? Go ahead. All right. I got to say that uh, it always, the linchpin is how the ring comes into play and having the Ferrari be the ring. I like that. I thought that was really good. I was modestly uh, impressed having Cameron be Sam or uh, to be Frodo. I get that. And other than that, hmm, I feel like that it's it's an adequate comparison. So I'm going to give you a big fat B minus. B minus. I like the car being the ring. I like uh, Cameron being Frodo, and I like Ferris being Sam. Everyone else. Eh, you could take her leave. Um, I could kind of sort of see Legolas with Sloane a little bit because she is a supporter. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I think the important aspects that you have, uh, I really dig that you switched up Sam and Frodo. You, you likewise, don't, you don't do that a lot. So likewise, that, that was good thinking on that. And then the car naturally being the precious because it's cast off of Mount Doom or yeah Cameron's garage. 
Right. So I'm uh, along the same lines with you, Professor. I'm going to give you a B. And that was John's. Moment. All right. What do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, do you want to rate this flick? I'm ready to go for that drive. Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Somebody says, hey, do you want to watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Fuck yeah, I do. That movie is cinematic gold. You're ready to watch that anytime. A one fuck movie is a movie where it's one and done. You've seen it once and you and you saw it for whatever reason you, you wanted to see it. Who knows? And after you're done with it, it's like hmm, completely indifferent. Never going to watch that again. And I, I no, done. And what's a zero? A zero, a zero fuck movie is, oh, for shit's sake. What the hell was that? Why would you make me watch that? I want one hour and 43 minutes of my life back. I feel just as bad as when that Ferrari goes flying out the back of the garage, through the glass, and down below. And in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, who wants to go first? I guess I'm going to go first. Oh, well, you did pick the movie. I did pick the movie. All right, fire away there, tough guy. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. As I mentioned earlier, this movie is something that is a very intimate part of me because I grew up with it. It hit me in that sweet spot right after high school. I'm on top of the world. And Ferris, he is showing us a day where he's on top of the world. And it is such a fun watch all the way through. Our three protagonists are a delight. And I love the, the, uh, the back and forth that Cameron and Ferris have with each other. Ferris constantly changing his outfits in the first third of the movie just cracks me up. I really appreciated that I got to see another part of Jeannie when she's leaving the police station. She finally has a vulnerability, a tenderness to her as she is all googly-eyed after, you know, being swept off her feet by this complete stranger that in the rest of her world she would completely shut him out and not even give the time of day to. I also had a lot of fun with Rooney. His character is played to perfection by Jeffrey Jones. And Grace, boy, what a, what a nice little one-two knockout punch. These characters are so much fun. And the movie really works for me. The, uh, the tenderness that we get to see with Ferris and Sloane at the end when they're when they're saying their goodbyes, there's there's a comfort, a, a relaxation of their relationship that they really do have this bond that seems stronger than just young love. You know, they're not googly-eyed with each other. They're, they're comfortable with each other. And the, and I, I think it just makes me feel that much more uh, satisfied inside thinking that they are going to be together for a long time. And then, you know, when Sloane says... That man's going to marry me. I, I just bought it, and it just leaves me feeling so fun and happy inside. This movie with its music cuts, oh, so much fun. This movie is five solid fucks. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is cinematic gold. Uh, you or me there? You go first. All right, I'll go. 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, went up against, you know... Arguably one of the best summers for movies in cinema history. You know, all of those hits. And it holds its own. It helps 
Matthew Roderick become a star. John Hughes just keeps hitting him, you know, out of the park. His writing and directing efforts um, are all fun, lovable, relatable stories. This one I had a lot of fun with. I remember growing up loving it. I remember thinking that, you know, you can buck the system and get away with it. Um, question authority, this, that, and the other. And though I think that this movie is a tad long in some spots, I think for the most part, it's cut very well. It's paced decently. It's acting and the cast is spot on. They are absolutely fantastic. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a fun, nostalgic ride that I'm happy to take um, at least once a year. It's not something that I'm going to watch if I see it on without seeing what else is on. Uh, in my book and the way I'm rating my films, to me, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is not cinematic gold, but it is still so much fun, and I do have a lot of love for this film. I'm giving Ferris Bueller's Day Off 3.75 fucks. So before I get started... Would you like to guess what my rating is going to be? Yes, and I will be the first to admit that I shit the bed last week. I gave you way too much credit for summer school, so now I'm going to break it. I'm going to bring it back just a little bit. I think you are going to give Ferris Bueller's Day Off three and a half fucks. Three no, and no, three and a quarter fucks. No, three and a half fucks. Final three and a half fucks. That's your final answer. Final answer. Three and a half. Here I go, baby. Okay, let's see if you can get back on that pony. Let me tell you about a classic flick. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's a quick pick. A high school senior with a plan so slick. To skip school and an amazing day, that's the trick. With his best friend and girlfriend in tow, they hit the streets with everywhere to go. From the Art Institute to Wrigley's Field, Ferris shows us how he's not ready to yield. But his sister Jeannie and Rooney are hot on his trail trying to catch him, but to no avail. And when Cameron's dad's car goes for a sale, Ferris' perfect day seems destined to fail. Overall, it's a movie that is a ton of fun. Of 80s comedies, I would say second to none. But when it comes to ratings, I must confess, out of five fucks, I give it four and a quarter fucks. No more, no less. Four and a quarter fucks? 4.25 fucks. All right. Four, fuck, I really fucked that one up again, too. Well, two weeks in a row, I got it wrong. But I like to think that my percentage of you're, right is higher ba- than your wrong. Your batting average is high. Yeah. So with five perfect fucks from The Professor, 4.25 fucks from The Comic Book Guy, and 3.75 fucks from Yours Truly, that gives Ferris Bueller's Day Off an average of... fucks, which now puts it in the seventh place, tied with Shang-Chi, The Crow, The Road Warrior, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Hot Fuzz. It is slightly better than Hunt for the Wilder People, Ghostbusters Afterlife, and Saving Private Ryan. And it's slightly worse than Ocean's Eleven, Alien, Snatch, and John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. I like the company that it has that it's tied with. Yeah, not too bad. 
All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. Speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can always find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post everything we have about this movie, our show notes. If you love this movie, you can even find more information about it on our website. You can also find all of our podcasts and anything else we feel like putting there. You can also find us at any place that hosts podcasts as well of all as well as all of social media. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. I have my lead-in for Lord of the Rings figured out. Oh, good. Why don't you tell us it? That way we don't spoil it. Do you want me to? No, I just said that because... You know what? That was mean. I apologize. <laughs> Save it for the show. Absolutely. What do you think of Ferris breaking the third wall? Fourth. Fourth. Fourth, excuse me. Breaking the... You can record it. I was just about to fuck it. What? Why? Because I'm the producer. Oh, my fucking God. And to my left, we have the... (laughs) See, you fucked me all up. So you like bestiality is what you're saying? Interspecies erotica, fucko. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Fair point. Fair point. My bad. Oh, that is true. They are in uh, Chicago, right? So. I don't know. When was crack whack? Quack. Quack. Quack is always whack. No, 89. Wasn't it Whitney Houston that came up the phrase crack is whack? Which is ironic, right? Oh, Oh, too soon? Too soon. For once, I didn't say it. Porn yeah. name? Um, I put a lot of thought into this one. Well, fire away then, guy. Bare ass ballers jack off. Bare ass ballers, ballers jack off. Yeah, or lay off, but I think jack off is better. For Ferris Bueller's day off porn? Yeah, could it be bare ass Bueller's jack off? I like that one. Bare ass Bueller. What about you there, guy? What do you got? Fanny Butthart gets off. <laughs> I think I'd want to see that movie. And the professor comes through again. I got two things. First thing, we went an entire episode. To my recollection, John did not use the word foreshadowing once. Yeah, he did. I did, actually. Damn it! All right, fuck off. Good night. You're still here? It's over. Go away. Go.